Hello and welcome to Clean Your Fucking House, Bitch, with Nancy, Kevin, and Lou. In our program, we get real about the challenges of life and living. Your mind is the most powerful tool you have to ensure you are on your desired path for success and satisfaction. Yet, from the day you are born, you gradually and subconsciously fill it with tons of useless shit that gets in your way. Why is that? How can you clean that mess up? We'll show you how. Get ready to clean your fucking house. Today, we have a guest joining us. Her name is Vicki Nicely, which definitely was given to her with intention and has proven to be true. Um, Vicki is someone that I have been connected with previously as a part of support on her journey, and she's going to share more about her journey. But what inspired me and why she's here with us today is going through the challenges that life has delivered she has kept a positive attitude and kept this intention and desire to help others through it all. And, and this is something we talk about often, Vicki, you won't necessarily know that, but we talk about being other people centered and really what benefits positivity can bring to our future. So you inspired me and um, we're so grateful to have you here to talk with us today. I have two questions just to start. And one, yeah. And then one is, share your big desired outcome of that thing you want to do, but then bring us back to talking about the experiences that got you to having that desire. Well, I am a people person. I have been known to be a fixer. I'm learning to not fix, but to offer suggestions and uh, ask questions. I can either give them a fish or I can teach them how I'd rather teach them how, but my, my basis of my journey is that I want to restore hope and purpose to hurting broken people. And that's been my desire since I was a small child. At the age of 16, I knew that I wanted to have a home for battered and abused women because I myself had been abused as a child. I didn't know a whole lot about battered and abused women. It just seemed to me that if I was, then somebody else probably was. In fact, I thought it was normal. I thought everybody's family went through what I went through, but that's, I want to give people tools to be able to uh, handle a bad situation and to realize they don't have to stay there. They're not locked. They don't have to stay in the situation that they find themselves in when it comes to uh, family violence and abuse. Awesome. I'm sorry it started for you at such a young age. Yes, it did. Um, I remember my first, what I consider uh, not so kind spanking that was a little overboard when I was about four years old. Um, and I ran into the bedroom, threw myself on the bed and bit myself. I thought I was that worthless and uh, uh, that I deserved the pain. Um I guess this is the time to tell that the reason that I feel that this um, abuse started at such an early age is that my mother was raped and I was the result. And she didn't hold me, hug me, kiss me. She dressed me well. She fixed my hair. But everything else was hands off and far away. 
And if you, if I did have hands on, it was hard and it hurt. So um, that progressed through the years um, until one day when I was 16. Now, let's back up till I was 10. This is the first time at 10 where she told me that she could just kill me at 10 years old because I didn't do something right. And she jerked a broom back about to hit me with a broom. And I told her to just go ahead and kill me. She said she was stunned and she stopped and she said, well, I can't kill you. You're my daughter. And I screamed back at her. You're always telling me you're going to. It's impossible. Please just go ahead and kill me. At 10 years old, I made that statement. Then at 16, she actually tried to uh, by putting me behind the door in an old farmhouse that had wood walls and a wooden door, solid wood door. I don't mean one of these newfangled doors that are hollow. And she slammed this door against me. I can still hear it hit. It was hitting the other wooden wall. It wasn't hitting me, but I can still hear it hit that wall seven times. Bang, 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 as hard as she could. She was slamming this wall on what she thought was myself. But there was a little triangle back there that she didn't know anything about. And I was backed up into that triangle, and it was just barely hitting my arms. And that was at 16. That's at the point where I realized that I wanted to make a difference in life. Um, like I said, I didn't know that other people didn't um, experience this. For one thing, in the 50s and the 60s, it wasn't talked about. It was hidden. Uh, you didn't go to school and tell people that what had happened at home that day. So um, I carried the pain for a long time. A moment for a breath of just embracing that reality. Yes, well, in fact, um, go ahead. Oh, Vicki, I'm sorry. I just want to say this is, uh, wow, really hitting me um, unexpectedly uh, because I just, uh, th th some of what you shared, and thank you so much for sharing. I mean, this is really an incredible story. Some of it I can relate to, but so much of it I can't. And it just blows my mind that, yeah, I'm I'm sure, you know, there was, uh, I'm not going to say a lot of that going on, but enough that and as you mentioned it wasn't talked about uh but again just thank you for sharing because it's really just uh touching me i would love to know and, and perhaps this might happen a little later on in the conversation so feel free to say hold up lou we're gonna get to that but have <laughs> you reconciled with your mom at some point and how did that conversation go oh yes it was a a beautiful situation my mom died at 58 went in 1993 uh, right after I got out of nursing school, and which was her dream. She wanted me to become an RN, and I did. And uh, one month later, she went home. But how it reconciled was back in 1982. I, uh, I'm i a praying person. I have a relationship with God that's very intimate and close, which I enjoy. I, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's what got me through the whole situation. And I felt very impressed to leave. I was at that time, uh, director for a home for battered and abused women in Pecos, Texas. Uh, look up Billy Solestis. Sometimes it was in his mansion. <laughs> it wasn't really a mansion. It was just big for the town, but it was big enough that the town bought it for a home for battered and abused women. So um, I felt impressed to go home and pray for her, which she didn't really believe in prayer that God was going to change anything. She was a very angry, bitter woman. 
But I did what he said, and I went home with my five-year-old and a two-year-old niece and uh, sat on the bed with her. And I said, Mom, I know that you don't believe in this, but I do. And I feel very impressed to pray for you. So I prayed for her. And uh, just a few months later, she made a real commitment to her relationship with the Lord and became a totally different person. She was not the same person at all. She laughed. She had a good time. Uh, we went uh, shopping together. We went out to eat together. When I was back in Louisiana at the time, I was out, of course, in West Texas. But when I came home for Christmas or Thanksgiving or her birthday or whatever, and we talked on the phone probably once or twice a week, <clears throat> she became my best friend. And I had her as a friend for 11 years before she died. And I was at her side, um, cheering her on at that moment so that she would know that I was there and I loved her and I forgave her. That was the beautiful ending to a story. Yeah, Vicki, thank you so much for sharing. Um, very impactful story that you have. And, um, you know, I just, I didn't want to say thank you and, you know, the amount of courage and strength that you, that you showed through that uh, is inspiring. And I guess, I guess my main question uh, or what popped up just now for me was that forgiveness that you portrayed. Did, was that something that you had to consciously work towards building or did it come up naturally for you? Is it more innate within you? Because um, I would just, you know, when you hear a story like that, you kind of, you start empathizing, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. And I feel like for me, that would be the one thing um, thinking of creating a beautiful relationship with, with someone that hurt me so much. It just seems like something that would be very difficult. So was that something that came natural or did you have to really work on forgiveness? It came natural for me in 1971. <laughs> I had had an inspiring relationship, an uh, encounter with God, and I learned about forgiveness and letting go of the pain. And I went to her in the hospital to ask her to forgive me. My dad was there. I had a friend with me, and she very vehemently said, no, she wasn't forgiving me. I didn't, though, realize, Kevin, that it wasn't me she wasn't forgiving. It was her abuser that had raped her that she wasn't forgiving. But I didn't know that at that point. So I can look back now and see that that's where her her unforgiveness came toward me. <clears throat> so I am the type of person that I forgive um, immediately because unforgiveness builds bitterness inside your heart, which does things to your body. And I had learned that early on. I do what I call blanket forgiveness. If someone does something against me, I've learned not to hold a grudge. And not to, uh, I say this, that forgiveness isn't forgiveness until you can do it without wanting to hurt them. So uh, many people want to forgive, but they want that person to really suffer for what they did. And I, I say that you haven't really forgiven until you can do it without that feeling. I think, that's, I think that's beautiful. That actually reminds me of, of a quote that I can't remember word for word, but it was by like Mike Tyson and he was talking with somebody on a podcast and he said, um, the guy was talking about cutting people off once they do you wrong or do harm to you. And he was like, well, then you give them power because then they change who you are. 
instead of just forgiving, not wishing ill will on anybody. And that that's amazing. Thank you, Vicki. Yeah, that's surprising. Oh, sorry, Vicki. That's surprising from Mike Tyson. But that aside, what uh, (laughs) he actually is like a pretty spiritual guy now. I think I think that's true. What I want to share for our listeners just connected to Vicki is that um, this she learned it beforehand. It might not have come so readily in the moment. And in that moment is that time, I think, you know, that we're all thinking about. Wow. So nice. that in the moment you were able to give that. That's a gift. Um, But you did take some time. So if a listener feels like I have no ability or desire to forgive, it might come in a later space in time and then come back to that person. Yes. Forgiveness is a choice, but it, it, like you said, it doesn't happen immediately. I can remember, I didn't want to hurt her. I just would go into the bathroom and pray she died. Mm. That's pretty, that's pretty bad, you know, because I couldn't handle the stress anymore. I was just a child and was given responsibility for children younger than me. I'm the oldest of five. I started caregiving brothers and sisters, a sister in particular, when I was four years old, while she slept half the day, uh, not knowing that she most probably had bipolar disorder because she was either very depressed or very angry. But it amazed me that when she was with friends, she was very happy and uh, everything was roses and she was a great cook and she decorated cakes and uh, she was, you know, very social when other people were around. Uh, But I didn't know anything about um, mental health nursing or mental health period uh, that a person was supposed to have as a child. And it was confusing. It was very confusing. Tell us about your nursing studies. Well, I look at my nursing studies as uh, part of my preparation for where I am today. I don't think in our life anything is wasted. Uh, If we'll look at it as that, we can get later down in life and find out that it all had meaning, it all had purpose, even though it hurt. Jesus never promised us a life that without pain. In fact, you know, we're not ever going to get to a place where we don't have have challenges. We just learn better how to handle them, I pray. But um, um I'm sorry, I lost your question. Oh, just, you know, nursing and really uh, working through what that's done for you, that foundation. The choice sounds like it was really guidance from mom. Yes, it was. It was. My mother wanted me to be a nurse when I was a little girl. Before I was even in school, people would say, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? And uh, she'd say, say nursing, Vicki. Say you want to be a nurse. (laughs) Okay, Mama, I want to be a nurse. And she would introduce me to nurses and tell me how much money they made. That's actually what she wanted to be. It was her desire to be a nurse. When she was in the ninth grade, they got married. And in the 10th grade is when she got pregnant with me. Um, so she, I, I always thought it's because I killed her dream. But she wanted to relive it through me. Thankfully for her. I love studying the body and um, understanding anatomy and physiology and what makes the body tick. Well, I also love knowing what makes the mind tick. Why do we behave the way that we do? Why do we think the thoughts that we do? Why do we respond the way that we do? So I started studying psychology very early in life. I'm a self-starter. 
I don't wait for somebody to tell me what to do. So uh, my dream was to always go into nursing and to become a mental health RN. Or as was said at the time, a psych RN. We stopped using that term because the word psych just meant something. Oh, my goodness, that means you're nuts and, and they're going to put you in the in Pineville in Louisiana. That was a state hospital. There was such a, a, a shame based with getting mental health help. Um, but I was determined that I wanted to tear down that mask and make it easier for people to recognize and realize they needed help just as if they had high blood pressure or a heart problem or a kidney problem that in our minds are, we are a spirit that has a soul. Our soul is our mind, our will and our emotions. And we have a live in a body. If we don't pay attention to all three of those aspects of who we are, Another aspect's going to fall as a result of it because we are one person with those three aspects of of our body, of our mind, of our will, <laughs> of our spirit. And so I started taking a holistic approach uh, to bringing health and healing to people. I did go back to te- I went back to school. I told my dad when I dropped out in 1970, I said, "Daddy, one day I will go back. I will go back." And at 89, a way was made for me to go back. Um, My dad went to the bank and made a signature loan to pay off some old school loans. And I was able to pay those off in three months. And uh, I had a 12-year-old by now. It was was okay to leave him alone. And uh, I was much more studious this time than I was the time before. And I did graduate at the top of my class, not believing that me at 40 could beat out a 20-year-old. It just didn't, but the 20 year olds played like I did when I was 20. Years. <laughs> so it came in two parts, but it served you well. But tell us all the ways yes, that it served you, it. because I think it's not just in being a nurse, but in so many other ways. And what other ways has that, that, that accreditation served you? Yes. Uh, you know how the Marines say, once a Marine, always a Marine. Well, we nurses have a saying that says, once a nurse, always a nurse, because we still have that knowledge base. And because I started studying uh, human behavior and how people did what they did, I even studied uh, body posture and uh, facial expressions to that belie who, what we say many times. Um, I studied that, but, you know, I found out, too, that you couldn't make a whole lot out of it because... There are people who are what we call covert. They're um, a person that seems to be one way to the world, but behind that, I see you smiling, Louise. (laughs) (laughs) I was just making a face about being a covert, (laughs) and he's laughing at me. Oh, he's laughing at you. (laughs) Okay. Um, I studied... And, and worked in hospitals as a director and then as a super supervisor because director was more administrative. And I'm not an administrator. I'm a people person. And I wanted to be out on the floor with, with the patients. At that time in 1993, geriatric nursing had just come into its own because we found out that many people over 65 were overdosing on purpose because they felt they had no purpose for living, no reason to live. And that's why my original statement said, restoring hope and purpose to a wise and wonderful generation. 
because I had such feeling for the geriatric age person uh, who had lost their way. They lost their family. They lost their money. They lost their health. They lost their, their parents. They lost brothers and sisters. The losses just mounted up and mounted up and mounted up till they lost hope that there was any purpose for them to live anymore. They'd say, you know, I might as well just end my life. So this became uh, very popular during this time, geriatric nursing. Uh, but with that came also uh, taking care of people with dementia. Now, you understand that dementia is not a psychiatric problem. It is a neurological problem, but they can present the same way. Well, you know, the, the body and the mind uh, are, are so closely related that what we think does affect our nervous system, but that's not why we have dementia. Dementia is a whole different category if we would recognize it. However, I learned some wonderful ways of interacting with families and with geriatric patients during this time and did a lot of education. I love to educate and teach people a better way to do whatever they're doing. I have to be very careful with that because sometimes it comes across as, you're trying to tell me what to do. <laughs> no, I'm trying to offer you some options you hadn't thought of. So I have to be very careful how I state those things. But I, one of the main things I learned with a geriatric patient was you don't yell. Yelling is not going to get it across to them any quicker. They're not deaf. And you don't argue because they live in their own reality. If they say there's a yellow and polka dot duck uh, with purple head and orange eyes walking across the floor, you say, oh, I see a purple and you try to repeat whatever they just told you. Because sometimes it's far, like my husband later did have uh, Louie body dementia. And we were sitting on the back porch where I had him in a closed dementia unit because now he was wandering too much and I couldn't take care of him 24-7 like I thought I could. Just because I was a nurse, I thought I could take care of him 24-7. Eventually, you can't do that. It's just not realistic. But my family did not understand. Uh, but we were sitting on the back porch. And he said, oh, look at that boat. He's from down South Texas area, so he's used to seeing boats out on the Gulf. I said, well, what is it? He said, don't you see it? It's that big boat sitting right out in the middle of the yard right there. So you just kind of play along and you say, oh, what color is it? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not facilitating something dangerous. If, if I said, if he said there was a man with a knife, you know, I'd probably go, well, let's go inside. <laughs> Uh, to get away with the man from the night. Um, but uh, he stood up and he walked over there and I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to see what color the boat is. You wanted to know what color the boat was? So he walks over there. About that time, we have to come back in to eat. And he follows me back in and I said, well, what color was the boat? He said, I don't know. When I got there, it wasn't there. So reality, somewhere along the line, clicked in for him to realize the boat wasn't there. But uh, I took that same situation into a, he died in 2018. I was lonely. Now, here's the classic things that many people in domestic violence do. They lose a spouse. And this is one of them. There's many aspects. But for older women, this, this can really happen. I didn't see it coming. I was totally blindsided because I knew depression. I knew anxiety. I knew bipolar. I knew schizophrenia. 
and I knew dementia. All those are treatable with medications. Personality disorders are not. Uh, and I didn't study personality disorders too much. This guy had gone to the same college I did. He was the same denomination I, I was. He had the same dreams and aspirations I had, I thought. So I thought, well, my, I found this other wonderful person to spend the rest of my life with. And we can open this home for um, women together because, you know, he's a caring person. He took such excellent care of me. He he cooked for me. He cleaned. He brought me uh, dinner in bed. He, he brought me all kinds of um, I was always had something to drink in my hand because he believed in uh, lots of fluids during the day. So I gave him what we now know as his, I'm going to use this word, narcissistic supply. Narcissism nowadays have different connotations for different people because there is a spectrum. Uh, all of us have a little narcissism or uh, or we wouldn't probably get up out of bed every day and do what we do. <laughs> we wouldn't take care of ourselves properly. But there is an end spectrum that can be quite dangerous and blindsiding. And he was covert narcissistic. I didn't see it. I thought he was treating me with wonderful respect until one day I realized he was everything I said. He came back at me with something negative taking the other side. And I thought, hmm, I guess he's just trying to make me think of both sides of the issue so that I don't get one-sided with it. So I kind of played his game until one day, and I'm coming at this from a, a, a Protestant Christian ad, ad, attitude, atmosphere, with what I'm about to say. He said, you know, I don't have a testimony. And I said, what do you mean you don't have a testimony? Everybody has something that God's helped them with or helped them through. And he says, I never did drugs and I didn't do alcohol. And I said, well, like I said, there's other things in your life that God helped you with, I know. And he stood there and he kind of sighed and said, I don't ever remember sinning. I think he's joking. And I said, well, you might not have killed somebody. You might not have stolen anything. But I have to tell you, I don't know anybody that hasn't lied. I'm sorry. I don't know anybody that hasn't lied. He said, I've never told a lie. Well, my jaw drops to the floor. I think he's joking. So I started laughing. And I said, I didn't know I married Jesus. I didn't know I married Jesus. And he gave me the ugliest look. I didn't know that I had just challenged a tightly held belief that was real for him. And we call that a delusion when we have a tightly held belief that nobody else believes. I don't even think I know a Hindu that believes that or a Buddhist that believes that. I don't even think agnostics believe that. I'm not real sure about atheists. I won't say. Um, but uh I had challenged him, and within 30 minutes, he was sitting chopping some vegetables, and he reached out his hand across the table, had to reach over to do it, and waved a knife in my face, just like this. And I'm trained to get out of people's uh, face when, you know, you feel a little threatened. As an RN, I was trained that way, so I backed up, and I said, what are you doing? He went, oh, nothing. 
he goes back to chopping vegetables. And within three minutes, and it was probably sooner, he said he reached over and he did it again, right? But this time a little closer. And I backed up and backed up really slowly. Now I've been taught to get out of their space, way out of their space. So I got up and walked over into the kitchen. And I can't tell you what that did to me because I did not understand. I had just gone through a PTSD experience. It was weeks later before I understood that that sent me on my flashback to my childhood and the door and the hitting and the the hair pulling, hands too close to my face. See, PTSD came to light because of what happened in the military. And it was horrible. And some of them never get over it. But it's not just military people. It's also first responders. Think of all the things that a first responder sees every day. The uh, One guy was telling me recently about he was a police officer and he saw a guy blow his head off right in front of him. Can you imagine It wasn't surprising to me that he sat there quiet for a while with tears running down his face again as he remembered. I just had let him stay in that state for a little bit and then changed the subject. And he came back because he's learned how to bring himself back out of it instead of it totally uh, isolating him and keeping it in his house. So So how did you bring yourself out of that that PTSD experience you found yourself in with the knife? I left the next day. I had enough training to know because I had taken the abusive family when I was in college that and saw the burning bed. If you've not seen the burning bed with Farrah Fawcett, you need to see it. Uh, have you seen it, Lou? Okay. The Farrah Fawcett plays the part in there as he they, they take them and separate them from their family, take them out in the woods somewhere to live. I was out in the middle of the woods on 10 acres of land that took a four-wheel drive to get in and out. I certainly couldn't walk in and out. It was very hilly and muddy and rocky. There was no way I could have walked out of there, and my vehicle couldn't get in there. So uh, the next day, he took me to a neighbor's house where I was meeting with a lady. And when I got to the lady's house, I called 911, and they came and got me and took me to a hospital. And then I came uh, to actually the place where I am right now. I am in a Women's Crisis Center, Um, because I did the thing that that most people do, because they go back. And this was a year and a half ago when this first incident happened, and I got out of it then, but I didn't realize it was PTSD. And I really didn't get help for it until I realized, I heard one day that um, PTSD can cause, and trauma, childhood trauma, Long-term trauma can cause all kinds of physical maladies. And there's a, a, a list of, there's a vagus nerve that goes from our brain all the way through our body. And wherever that vagus nerve is attached, it can cause physical problems. And I had them all. I'm going to start here. Uh, depression, anxiety, chronic headaches, uh, high blood pressure because it affects the heart because it's connected to the heart. Uh, esophageal reflux disease, uh, problems in the stomach. The reason that I am a hoarse right now, I am a singer, and I'm not usually hoarse, but don't ask me to sing today. Um, the 
it affects the acid and the acid has come back up my throat so many times because I don't have my bed that's slanted like this. It comes back up my throat in the night and it's burning my vocal cords. It is a it is an, a hideous situation that happens when a person is traumatized because of the physical things that actually happen to the body. Um, but a wonderful thing has happened. I've been in a in a therapy called EMDR. Anybody heard of that? Nobody, no raising hands. <laughs> EMDR is a new therapy that they are finding that works. It's let me read it off here. Eye movement desensitization reprocessing. They're finding out that there are neural pathways in the brain that have been damaged because of the trauma. And your mind tends to go back to those incidences and you remember them. It causes a, a, it causes a chemical reaction in your brain that then affects the vagus nerve. Uh, the cortisone is, is expelled because of the fight, flight. I don't know if you know about this one. Fight, oh, yeah. flight, yeah. or freeze. Yeah. And then we've got another one. In our particular situation, there's a fourth F. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And that's what uh, these people with this particular uh, disorder does is they fawn. They make you feel like you're the most important person in the world. And then underhandedly, they begin to criticize and to intimidate and uh, say things that are not true. Uh, and then they turn into what's gaslighting, which means they're trying to make you feel like you're the crazy one. And, and he told me one day that I wasn't balanced. And I did lose my balance a lot, but I, that's not what he meant. He meant I was mentally unbalanced. And he said he never knew who he was going to wake up with. Actually, it was the other way around. I never knew who I was going to wake up with if I was going to have Mr. Je Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. So I had to eventually, because uh, of the thing, he wanted to start an argument. And he wanted to start an argument. He could win. Um, and I got, I don't remember. I don't argue. Go ahead. Uh, so are you telling us that you went back after this experience where you did from a friend's call 911 and find a safe space to be? You're telling us you went back after all of that. Yes. And that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. In fact, some women that I talked to had been back for their eight time and I was receiving what I call abuse and threats but I never was hit or kicked by him I just was by my mom um, but he threatened me even the second time after I came back and we're you're on a honeymoon period for a period of time and I went back because I thought if I love him enough and I give him you know and I stay off these subjects and we don't talk about the fact that he's never sinned. If I'll just stay away from those. See, we, we as, the, as the abused person, we begin to play our own mind game with ourselves, mm -hmm. thinking if I can just change, if I can just change, then I won't have to deal with this person that I don't like. Uh, and, and we take the blame and they give us the blame too. They blame, do what's called blame shifting. It's all our fault. Uh, Bob didn't do so much of that. He didn't. He didn't shift blame onto me for things until one day he was checking the account and he said on the on the computer he said, "What's the seven dollar charge?" 
in here. I said, $7? I ordered something and it was just, it was all I had to do was pay the uh, the shipping and handling on it for $7. I thought that was a pretty good deal. Well, he didn't think it was a good deal. So the next day he told me that he was now in control and what he said went. This was last March, this, just this past March. And when, when he said that, I realized I can't change him. He's going to become more so than what he was before. And I knew too much, really, from my the training that I did have to know that I might not I might not can divorce you, but I don't have to live in the same house with you. I'm walking on not eggshells. I'm walking on glass. I had actually gone into a fetal position when I was laying in the bed and I stayed there as much as I could. And when I was up, he talked in, you know, all the time, all the time, all the time. He was wanting to start an argument. And I didn't want to hear it. So I got headphones <laughs> and wore the headphones around listening to my phone all day. He didn't know I was learning also about narcissistic behavior and uh, that I didn't have to put up with it, that I could get out because I educated myself in that situation. So I got him to take me to the hospital one night. And while he was parking the car, I went to the officers that were there and I said, this is a domestic violence situation. He thinks it's something else. And they said, say no more. And they went into what must have been in hindsight uh, gear to uh, get me safe. They told him that I was going to be admitted and that he could go home. Then in the middle of the night, they tell me, we can't admit you because you're not suicidal and you're not homicidal. Are you Miss Campbell? <laughs> I said, no, sir. <laughs> we all had a good laugh over that. That I know I wasn't homicidal. I didn't want to hurt him. Um, but I got, I left again that time. And this time I was told by a police officer, he said, you need to, um, go no contact and uh, serve a restraining order. And I did. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done uh, to go no contact and uh, just totally break. Uh, you found courage and you found yes. courage to separate yourself from right. something that, that you realized could be nonstop. Yes, Kevin. Yeah. Vicki, um, you mentioned earlier, you said something that really resonated with me and something that we have talked about in previous podcasts, but you, you mentioned something along the lines of sometimes you don't understand the struggles you go through in life until later on when you look back. Right. And I just wanted to know from your perspective and perception, how do you, what, what gives you the courage and strength to approach life with so much equanimity and grace that you can allow things to happen right in front of you and not get completely consumed? Um, maybe not the moment, but, you know, it seems like you're doing great now and you, you know, have shared a lot of stories with us and you've been what I think what most people would consider is a lot through your life. So, you know, what, what is it that allows you to approach life with so much grace? I have to be 100% truthful and honest and say it's my relationship with God and realizing how he sees me and who he really is. He's not the monster that many people in this situation think, well, my husband was bad to me, therefore God's bad to me. And they and they were told by their family that, that God was going to strike them dead if they did so and so, or God will get you for that. I wasn't taught that. 
I was taught that God was a loving God who cared for me and that I could run to him anytime that I had a problem. I took the, the Bible as my handbook and my life book to tell me and show me how to live in a positive way and uh, stopped concentrating on the negative and looked at the positive in circumstances and situations because this wasn't the only time I was traumatized. I was assaulted by one of my patients in the hospital. And a week later, I had to have brain surgery because I found a tumor we didn't know I had. So I, in all of those circumstances, Kevin, I depended on who God was to get me through, that he was exactly who he said he was. He was my provider. He was my protector. And he has protected me that he would take care of me. He's my healer. He's my refuge. He's my high tower. He is my more than enough. He is um my banner in battle, he fights my battles for me. And that all came from learning in 1974 about how God really saw me. And I went from being a negative person to realizing it wasn't about me and it wasn't me. It wasn't my character. It was developing the character of Christ in me. I was actually going to ask about um, one of the comments that Nancy sent over before we started chatting was, uh, strengthen or straighten your spiritual spiritual realm and the rest will follow. So I guess you kind of yeah. answered that for me already. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. What was you, you, you brought up now twice, I believe um, something that had happened in 1974. I want to say was the date you said, but um, some type of interaction, spiritual interaction with God that occurred for you. Would you mind going into a little bit more detail about what that experience was that kind of shifted things for you? It seems like that was the, turning point to where you were uh, yes. tapping into your spirituality uh, more. Right. It was 1970, April the 29th, 1970. I was raised in a denomination that all they spoke about and uh, preached on on Sunday was salvation. Well, I was already saved. I got saved when I was seven years old and, and I would just go to sleep during the service. I mean, not literally, but just, you know, go off in my la land and think about something else because I'm already saved. What do I need this service for? Well, I, I realized from a praying great grandmother who had a great relationship with God and uh, was not afraid in the 50s to go to the back of the bus to hand out what they call tracks to the black people in the back of the bus. So somewhere in there, I got that resoluteness from my little tiny granny who just, you know, defied society at that time by going to the back of the bus and, and giving them bread, as she called it, giving them something for life. So in 1969, I started reading a book called The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson. If you haven't read that book, read it. He went to New York and worked with the um, gangs, with, especially with a young man named Nicky Cruz. There's even a, a movie that was made somewhere in the 70s, about the cross and the switchblade. He made such a commitment to God that he quit watching the news. Well, I did too. <laughs> the news became such a harrowing experience to me, in, especially in 21 with uh, January 6th and then January the 21st, um, that eventually I just quit watching it. I didn't know who to believe. I didn't know who to follow, but I did know to focus on God. Back to 1969, another group of kids on the campus at Northeast Louisiana University in Monroe, Louisiana, also were hungry for God. 
we knew there had to be more. And we had what we call an X2 experience with God, where he filled us to overflowing with his spirit. And we know from experience now that that's the thing that's made the difference in our lives, was that we accepted the third part of the Godhead into our lives. We understood God as Father. We knew him as Savior, but we didn't know him as comforter and, and, and giver of power in our life. And when you understand that God wants to fill you with who he is, He is a powerful God. He hears you. He answers you. He says, when you cry out to me with all your heart, I will hear you and I will come quickly and rescue you. And when I began to see that God was bigger than all my problems and uh, that I could go to him with everything, then that was definitely a life changing situation. Yeah, that must have been very freeing. Um, I grew up, I grew, I grew up without any type of relationship with god or spirit or the universe right and i just felt very alone and it wasn't until i started going inward and really learning about myself and studying other cultures other religions other spiritual tracks that i started to resonate more with the world that we live in and i think that there's so much value in doing what resonates deeply with you having strong firm beliefs for what makes sense for you because i think a lot of people also get kind of caught up in situations cultures families that push beliefs on them so i think it's important for any of our listeners you know if, if what you've been taught your whole life doesn't make sense to you there's a world of information and wonder out there that you can find that can help lift you up um but i think it does always help to know that there's something there's a purpose there's something driving you yes for you to push along because life is very challenging as we've we talk about often but that you've highlighted here by coming and talking about a lot of your stories i think too i think too it was the fact that i realized god made us with a purpose we weren't just randomly made and just stuck out there and said do the best you can He said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that he has a purpose for us. Finding that purpose for some people is difficult to do. For me, I knew early on what I wanted to do. And I've done done things to get it to come to pass. And then there's things like I didn't plan a a marriage that was going to be abusive. I didn't plan that. But I can now say I know how to minister to these women from the inside out. I have inside information and they will listen to me because I've been there. That makes a world of difference. Okay, Miss Nancy. Well, two things come from that, but, but, um, so I don't want to, to minimize these experiences and what you've gained from them, but also knowing that you've gotten these gifts from God and he gives you power and strength. And that's, that's your thing, right? your belief and your sense of stability and, but that you have these other gifts. And so I'm curious your thoughts about why and how of that, like you mentioned that you sing, maybe your voice is not what it used to be at the moment, but I behind us, which people can't see, but we're on video is the beginning of a painting. You've shared with me many of your paintings, which are very talented work. Um, So you have also other gifts. Tell me about your thoughts and feelings about, about that? Uh, Recognizing our gifts. Some people will say, I don't have any gifts because 
or I don't have any talents because they think that talents are singing and playing an instrument and acting. Those are gifts as well. But being a good accountant is a gift. I don't have it. <laughs> I'll tell people right out. Math is not my thing. If nursing had had more than one formula to figure things out, I'd probably been up a creek. But thankfully, if you knew the numbers to plug in in the right place, one formula worked. And they don't even use that anymore because the pharmacist figures it out for them. However, um, other gifts that helped me, I didn't know that I was that interested in art until I came here a year and a half ago. Um, and they had art classes. And in those art classes, it was amazing how. She, we would get all loosened up and she would ask one question and it would open up all the girls to talking about what had happened in their life and how they had dealt with it. And it gave her an opportunity to teach. Well, I had no idea that because I, I had drawn and I had pencil drawings that I showed you that I did before. I did what now is acrylics and paint techniques, uh, brush techniques. Uh, but she taught me how to do that. And it so fascinated me that I went to YouTube and I started looking at all kinds of art and learning from them, messing up badly, starting over, somehow fixing it if I could, sometimes just scraping the paint off and <laughs> getting a clean slate and starting over. You know what? And we get to do that in life. We get to right? do that sometimes. I was just <laughs> thinking that those are life lessons. Yeah. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Scrape the and paint off. You. Scrape the paint off and start over. If you if you don't like your picture, go ask God for a new picture. He'll go, I've had one all along. You just were looking in the wrong direction. It could be uh, it could be training animals. It could be fishing. I mean, I've seen people out here fishing. They're so talented. I didn't even know how to throw a rod and reel till I got here this time. I knew how to pole fish, but I've learned how to do a rod and reel. And I caught a fish the other day, a trout. They don't have those in Louisiana or Texas. Water's too warm. So those are kinds of things that God also gets us with to be able to cope with the, all this junk going around us. But what many times happens when we are uh, abused, we close in, we isolate, and they make sure we isolate. Uh, it's kind of a learned behavior in many incident, incidences. Um, I'm seeing we have five minutes left. <laughs> But we have time. We're not okay. on the clock. Okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure. Um, but what, so, what I love in, in connecting to that um, is there's things. So so those are coping mechanisms or they're tools that one can use if they can right. recognize them, right, to cope. And yes. something else you and I have talked about before is other tools that you use to find calm to find peace to find space um, and maybe you can share for our listeners what some of those tools are that have also helped you through this this journey some of them are so simple you think oh my goodness how in the world can that help but one of the, i started going to a therapist that uses emdr as part of her uh, plethora of things that she uses in her little toolbox to help us to re what she calls re-regulate our brain has gotten dysregulated and uh, gotten off course because of all the abuse but it can be re-regulated and one of the things that she uses emdr i don't really understand the physiology of it i wish that i did but it's a little strip of lights no wider than this 
it's about, uh, I've got off camera now, but it's about three feet long, just a little narrow of lights. And they go back and forth and back and forth. She first he taught me how to go to my safe place, my happy place. And mine is on a beach, sitting under a palm tree, on a blanket, reading a book <coughs> with what I call a mixed drink. Mine would be alcoholic, but good for you. This is peach water with uh, orange flavoring in it and coconut milk poured together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then she said, now listen to everything. What do you hear? And I'd say, I hear the gulls. I feel the breeze. What do you smell? A salt air, uh, hot dogs down the way. And that became my, my happy place, my safe place. So then she would take me back to the memories and go through the memories. And I did not realize many of those memories I had never grieved we think grief only has to do with death and loss, but grief is also has to do with trauma. We grieve the loss of our childhood. We grieve the fact that we weren't treated like we should have been treated. Um, we've grieved the pain that we had at the time. And I, I had never grieved it. I had, and, and in order to heal, I needed to open it up and get all the junk out. And she helped me to do that. But one of the simplest things, go ahead. Well, boom. I mean, that's the name of our podcast right there. So thank you. I mean, clean the effing house. That's what we're about. So thank yes. you. You got to get it cleaned out. If you leave a, a sore on your arm that maybe closes on the top, but down deep inside of it, it can cause pus to form. And that pus can then get into the bloodstream and actually kill you because it it's sepsis and it will toxin your whole body. So we have to open that up and get that toxin out uh, in order to be able to heal. But she also taught me this, which is, she says, breathe in. And I learned this when I had my baby uh, with some kind of method that we used at the time to relax ourselves, which was, I can't remember, started with an M. But anyway, you breathe in through your nose as deep as you can and then blow it out real slow. And she would direct me because she said, you're breathing too fast. Well, I'm trying to get it over with, you know. I didn't realize that I was doing a lot of things just to get through them and get past them. Slow it down, slow it down. Okay, now do it 10 times. And I'd say, I'll pass out before that happens. Well, a surprise, surprise, I didn't. But we don't breathe when we're in traumatic experiences. Um, so that's two really good tools, one being guided imagery and another being conscious breathing, because there are many patterns of, yeah, of conscious breathing. I mean, what you're talking about is a cleansing breath and the exhale is longer than the inhale. But yeah, awesome. Lou had his hand up. Yeah. Um, Vicki, wow. Thank you um, for sharing so much. I mean, this has been an incredible episode and I know we... We are not on a timetable at all, but I know we've had you here a while. And uh, thank you for, hey, I'm, for I'm, staying I'm with free. us. Awesome. <laughs> now, Vicki, you shared so much about your journey, how you developed courage, how you learned from it and took the bull by the horns to learn more about your situation, how you could overcome it. I know God has been an incredible influence on your life, as you also shared. I'm curious to know if there was any other person or role model 
that helped you as well? And what advice, without necessarily needing to name that person or your relationship at all, but what advice or guidance or tool did that person also provide you with that that helped you to get where you are today? That's an easy one. The year after I had this experience in 1970, I moved to Shreveport, Louisiana, and I met a, a group of young people at a Baptist student union there. But they were from a charismatic Pentecostal church. And uh, most of us, we didn't want to go there because we have to couldn't wear makeup. We couldn't wear jewelry. We'd have to wear our hair down. Well, this church didn't require that. They took us like we were and they loved us like we were. And the pastor's wife there, Frances Duran, I'll say her name because I'm proud of her. She's still alive. She's 87 years old. And uh, she had the biggest influence. She became my spiritual mother. I even called her mom, sometimes Mama D. Uh, but we would go for long walks. She and her husband, whose name was Duran, he was Cajun now. Um, Actually, he was Creole Cajun, if you know what that is. A lot of people don't, but it's three mixes of three different races from South Louisiana. And he spoke French. He was a wonderful pastor. His thing was the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So I lived in this positive atmosphere, and she so mentored me in music and drama because I was talented in those ways. She was a choir director and a piano player. I became one, too. I even uh, teach music like she does, which is without music. We, I learned how to harmonize, and she would. I taught every single group, the tenors, altos, and sopranos, how to sing their part separately without a piece of music in front of us. Uh, she also, at the time, I weighed about 275 pounds, and she saw potential in me. And she put me on Weight Watchers diet. She introduced it to me. She didn't actually make me take it. But it was a lot of fish five times a week. <laughs> and she would buy me cases of tuna fish to make salads out of. And before you know it, I've lost a lot of weight. And uh, I'm feeling better about myself. Uh, she then invites me to take her son, Denny Duran, who was a football uh, quarterback for Louisiana Tech at the time. He actually went on to play for the American uh, Football League that's no longer there, of course. Um, but um, he was a singer, and he sang with this group, but he had to go back to college earlier, and she gave me his position as a singer in that group. And uh, I traveled South Louisiana and Texas, and in one of my travels to Texas, I got uh, acquainted with college in Waxahachie, Texas. That's Indian for Buffalo Creek, in case you wonder. Mm -hmm. And don't ask me how to spell it, okay? <laughs> um, I met my husband there the first day. He was tall, dark, and handsome. And he uh, decidedly was the best-looking guy on campus, and I'm not the only one who thought that. Uh, and I didn't think that he would see anything in me. I, you know, I had just lost this weight. And I still had that image of myself, but he didn't see that person. He saw the new person. So um, she was definitely a, a great influence. And his acceptance of me was another influence that he, he took me like I was. Uh, he never put me down. He, he didn't belittle me. Uh, all the things that uh, that I got in the second marriage, he didn't do. That's not to say that marriage was perfect, but it was 44 years long. So 
we made it. He was a great influence. But there was a Sunday school teacher and a, in the Baptist church, we call him Girls Auxiliary, a GA teacher. Back when I was 10 years old, when I was experiencing this stuff with my mom wanting to kill me, she evidently saw something and she started bringing me to her house and teaching me scriptures, making me write the scriptures, taught me about missionaries. And every missionary that came to my church, I wanted to go to their country because Baptists didn't have preachers or speakers, women. You could only be a missionary if you were a woman. So these were the people that highly influenced my life. I've had many, many others, but I'd say that those were the two that I can look back at. The one was local uh, there where I lived as a 10-year-old with my mom, and she kind of became my spiritual mom as well. God just put these people in my in my life at opportune times to tell me who I really was and to speak life into my life and hope and purpose into my life. And that's then what I wanted to do. I wanted to do the same thing. It's to let people know they had value. Mm, And that value came from community. Sorry, Lou, that value came from community and connection. And I'm just going to offer that as a third, one of those tips and resources that can help one separate from a situation that they don't want to be in, right? And and find inner peace. You and I talked about another one yesterday. Um, do you recall? No, <laughs> we talked about a lot. I know, but it was laughter. And so when, <laughs> when, how to find laughter, right? And what laughter can do yeah. as well. I I found out uh, in in 2015, my husband and I, moved to a senior independent assisted living complex. We had our own apartment, but we all had meals together. And they would bring in entertainers. And some of them were so hilariously funny. And there might be 15 people out of the 100 that were there that came to it, but only three of us laughed. And one night, I was feeling badly in the middle of the night. Remember, I did have depression. And I got up in the middle of the night, which I hardly ever do, went and turned on the television, and there was I Love Lucy. And I laughed, and I laughed, and I laughed. I mean, I laughed till my stomach hurt. And when I got through, I wasn't depressed anymore. And I went and had a good night's sleep for the rest of the night. Laughter, the Bible says, does good like a medicine. And it does increase the oxygen. And in talking about increasing the oxygen, I had a situation to come about called neuropathy, where my feet were uh, numb and tingled and burned all at the same time. Now, how can that happen? I have no idea. But you can feel the numbness, the tingling and the burning. And sometimes it was excruciating. And I was on tramadol for 20 years, which is an artificial opiate. I had been on methadone. The doctor took me cold turkey off methadone. And guess what happened to me? I also went through withdrawals and ended up in my first psych hospital experience as a patient. Now, that's horrific for a, a no nurse. No psych nurse wants to end up in their own unit. It's just, you know, no, that's humiliating. But I did. And there again was that experience that I had to go through to understand humiliation and to understand what it was like to go through withdrawals. <laughs> So now I've been on the, they took me, finally took me off the, well, they took me off the methadone cold turkey with this, just shouldn't have done. But they left me on the tramadol and I had been on four to five tablets a day until three weeks ago, 
in doing all these breathing exercises and learning to laugh, all of a sudden I realized my feet were barely hurting. I can feel a tingle and I feel a little numbness, but the burning pain is not there. And I haven't had a tramadol now in two weeks and I didn't go through withdrawals. So <laughs> laughter I, can I, work. Laughter is medicine, they say. Can work. I really do think that getting the oxygen to my feet, you know, a lot of people say you gotta get the oxygen to your brain. Well, if you don't if you if you don't get it to your feet, you're not gonna be able to walk. So yes, please laugh. Okay. <laughs> we are big believers in the power of our self-healing. Our bodies are very powerful, and, and that yes. is an excellent example of that. Yes. Wonderful. But if we don't know it and we're all tensed up and we don't find joy in anything anymore, then we get sicker and sicker and sicker. And they wonder why. I was a, uh, on a group, a Facebook group for people with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. And one of the first things I heard is they thought that fibromyalgia was caused by trauma. And so I asked them one day how many of them had been affected with trauma. And, and many, many of them commented and said yes. Here's the thing about that. Many people with, with fibromyalgia were told it was all in their head, which to them meant I'm making it up. I'm faking it. That's what all in your head meant to them. Actually, what they were trying to tell them was it's trauma in your head and the thought life that you have that is affecting your body to the point that it gets sick. There's such a strong body-mind connection. But don't ever tell anybody it's in their head without telling them, asking them then, did you experience trauma as a child or somewhere in your life? Yeah, right. The connection and the words that we use are impactful to the experience that we have. If if we were to wrap with just there's so many, but if we were to wrap with one thing you feel like you really want to share with people that that helped carry you and and is a place to connect um, what what would you offer? It would be the dream that I have had all these years to have a home, what I call a transitional home. The, the shelters that we have now are just that. They're a shelter for the most part, especially since COVID. Um, they're understaffed and underpaid. They don't have as much money as they did one time. So there's no classes offered like there used to be. and um, they're overworked. And actually, I had an experience where I was more triggered with the, the director of the place that I was, not here, that uh, it, it triggered me to the point that I just wanted to give up. I just wanted to give up. I thought, I don't have any money. I don't have a place to live. It's very difficult where I live. Uh, there's waiting lists. If you can afford it, there's a waiting list, sometimes two years long. If you can't, if, if you can go into it tomorrow, you can't afford it, not if you're on uh, limited income, like many of us are. And it's exaggerating, exasperating. So uh, they find themselves in a situation, and this is what I've noticed. If we could educate the women while they're here, regardless of what their age is, to be able to make more money so that they can be more self-sustaining in life, uh, and they wouldn't have to go back. To their abuser. That's many times why they go back is they have no place else to go. Nobody wants them. They see them as broken, damaged goods because in lots of cases they are broken, damaged goods, but nobody's got them any help. We need them to, to participate in therapies like I've talked about. I don't think I'd be where I am 
if I hadn't recognized and realized that I needed therapy, that I needed help. I can't come right now. Sorry. It's okay. Um, It sounds like your tip is community. It sounds like your tip is to find community that will lift you up. Yes. Yes. And so that's what I want to do is to, uh, to, um, form this situation in some way where a home is developed, where we can at least have them for a part of the time to educate them, to get them into therapy, to give them other methods to be able to deal with uh, the conflicts that are happening in their life. Just education is paramount. So I want to be a person who raises awareness. Um, My dream now is to go all around America as a speaker and uh, raise awareness, not only for the fact that there is um, there are problems. One out of three women experience some kind of uh, some kind of abuse, but nobody knows it. It's hidden. They're sitting in your churches. Churches don't want to reach out to them and they'll give them clothes. They'll give them food. But that's not what they need. They need education. They need upholding. They need support. Well, Vicki, your support and your speaking around America starts now with this podcast <laughs> and um, will will help you go public. So we really appreciate your time here with us today and um, what our listeners will be able to hear and share with others. And so we really wish you all the success with your dreams. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for making a way. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Vicki. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, We'll see you all next time. Bye for now.